things in life are free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is your host, Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to talk about economics, the dollar, and what is happening with the effort to make Russia pay reparations for the destruction they have inflicted on Ukraine by seizing their currently frozen central bank reserves. There is no one better to discuss this topic than my guest, Douglas Radiker, currently at the Brookings Institution, focusing on geoeconomics and the managing partner at International Capital Strategies, a Washington, D.C.-based political advisory firm. Doug has also represented the United States on the executive board of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, Dimitri. Well, Doug, let's begin with the dollar. Certainly, we've seen a lot of ink being spilled over the last year or so, that this is the end of the dollar, with all of the weaponization of the dollar that we've been seeing in terms of sanctions on Russia and other countries before that, as, as well as the moves we're seeing from countries like Brazil trying to trade directly with China and renminbi, the Chinese currency. Why is it not the end of the dollar in your view? Well, first of all, we've been hearing the end of the dollar, not just for the past year or two or three or five. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, and I would say that when you see the fabulous charts that journalists and analysts always point to about the decline in dollar reserve holdings. So that's the holdings of U.S. dollars by global central banks. But that's a major component of the strength of the dollar. There's also the dollar's use in trade. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's start with reserves as that proxy for the strength of the dollar. They always go back and they start at around 1990, 91, 92. And they say, oh my God, look at how far the dollar has fallen. And that's misleading. So just as a starting point, the euro was introduced in that period. And at the time of the introduction of the euro, everybody around the world moved away from Deutschmarks and French francs and Italian lira and moved into the dollar for that interim period when the euro was being introduced. So there was this artificial increase in the level of dollar reserves as the individual European currencies were being abandoned and the euro was being introduced. So if you start from an artificially high starting point, then yeah, it looks like the steep, steady decline of the US dollar. If you start a couple of years later, then it looks pretty damn constant. And in fact, if you look a decade earlier, it also looks pretty damn constant. So I'm not suggesting that there has not been a slight decrease in global dollar reserves, but in general, the dollar has been around 60% of global reserves for decades. It's now at around 58, 58 and a half. I'd argue that's pretty damn close to 60. So we're not seeing this dramatic fall off in dollar reserves. Having said all of that, clearly the weaponization of the US dollar is something that irritates a lot of other countries. And for good reason. The US uses and some would say abuses its position as the world's dominant global reserve currency. That means we can impose sanctions that no other country can, because we can say in the extreme, if you don't abide by what we're telling you to do or not do, we can cut your financial system off from the U.S. dollar system. And that is a very serious sanction that nobody else has. So as a starting point, countries don't like that. The U.S. is clearly using it in the context of the 2014 invasion of Crimea. 
We escalated sanctions, obviously, on the back of the most recent invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war. Countries don't like to be told that they can't or can do something that the U.S. either wants them to do or doesn't want them to do because the U.S. simply insists on it. But that doesn't mean they've got a lot of alternatives. So is this the case? You know, we've been hearing in the stock market during the zero interest rate period in the last decade, Tina, there is no alternative to investing in stocks because the bonds are returning nearly nothing. Is that the case in the currency system that there is no alternative to the dollar? Renminbi is really not a convertible currency. And how much do you really trust the Chinese to keep large reserves of their currency? Euro has a lot of issues as well. The Eurozone is not doing great. Is that the situation the countries would love to move off the U.S. dollar, but they just can't? Well, I think that's, in short, the answer to your question is yes. That doesn't mean that the Chinese currency is not uh, increasing in its share of both trade and as a reserve currency. But in 2022, which is the last year that we have complete data, the renminbi overtook the Japanese yen as the fourth most active payment currency in the world, up to 3.2%. The renminbi last year as a reserve currency reached their all-time high of 2.88%. Now, that's interesting as a metric because the IMF has an SDR. The SDR is the IMF's it's not a currency, but it's a proxy for the IMS reserve currency basket. It has several currencies in it. That basket forms the components of the SDR. The Chinese renminbi was introduced into that reserve currency basket, the SDR, about 10 years ago. They are at 12.28% of the SDR basket. But as a reserve currency itself, it is being held by 2.88%. So let's just repeat that. 12.28% if you were just being neutral on the IMF's assessment of its reserve currency status. But the actual users of reserve currencies, holders, have it at one-fifth of that uh, figure that the IMF describes to it. And what do you make of the trade moves? Particularly Brazil, I think, is the most prominent that said that bilateral trade with China will be done in their local currencies. Is that just a smart move by them because you're no longer paying currency conversion fees to the dollar, their imports and exports are more or less equal, so you effectively have kind of a barter situation where no one's going to hold large volumes of each other's currency for long anyway? Well, so on a bilateral basis, it's clear the dollar is losing some of its stature. If you've got country A trading with country B, rather than going through the U.S. dollar, some of them are now engaging in bilateral trade in their respective currencies. That's fine. That's fine, but it also means that the country that is getting more of the other country's currency in exchange, so let's use, for example, Russia and India. Russia has been trading in rupees and rubles much more than they used to with India, which means now Russia is the holder of billions of Indian rupees. Well, the rupee is not a global reserve currency and is not a widely accepted currency in non-Indian specific trade. So what exactly are the Russians supposed to do with those rupees? If you look at Brazil, as you mentioned before, again, Brazil can say, we want to move away from the US dollar. And on a bilateral basis, that's fine. They can trade all they want with other current countries using their bilateral currencies. But at a certain point in time, in the broader universe of global trade and financial interactions, 
they've got to have something that they can do with those the currencies that they hold. If they hold dollars, or to some extent euros or sterling or yen, they can actually use them in third-party transactions with other countries. If they're holding Argentine pesos, not so much. Well, with regard to your point about Indian rupees, the Russians actually have said that we're going to stop trading local currencies because we have too many rupees and we don't have any use for them. We don't buy enough things from India. Very different decision from the one they're making with China, of course, where they're trading a lot in renminbi, but that's also because they have massive volume of imports now coming from China because everyone else is cutting them off, right? That's right. And, and China's the big you know, elephant in the room on this, right? So we're not really looking at Brazil and saying that you know we think the Brazilian currency is going to be a challenge to the U.S. dollar. Um, but clearly, China, being the global economic and political power that it is, and it's you know increasing in its global um, ambitions in many ways, one could argue that the Chinese are the threat to watch for. The question really then becomes, does China really want to follow through on what it takes to become a threat to the U.S. dollar globally? Now, you can argue politically that sounds very enticing. And actually, financially and economically, it sounds enticing as well. But think about what that means. Because if you are going to be trading, or if you're going to be a central bank holding a reserve currency, you want to make sure that that currency that you're holding is liquid. For the Chinese to mount a challenge to the U.S. Treasury as that globally liquid asset that people have and know that they can liquidate fairly easily on a moment's notice, the Chinese would have to issue huge amounts, trillions of dollars of Chinese renminbi-denominated debt, allow that to trade globally. Now, again, China and its leadership does not like markets that are uncontrollable. But by definition, if you're going to issue trillions and trillions of debt around the world, it's going to be trading outside of your ability to manipulate that trade. So for them to do that, they would have to become a wildly deficit-oriented country, which they seem and no interest in, of doing, and they would have to let the market dictate the, the prices and the values, not only of the currency, but of these individual securities. I'm not sure that that's something that Xi Jinping or his collective economic or political brain trust really want to do. It sounds great to say we're going to have bilateral trade, and they'd like nothing better than to diminish the, the influence and the power that the U.S. has via the U.S. dollar. But I'm still not convinced that there's any legitimate challenge to the U.S. dollar that's in the foreseeable future. And how much does it matter in terms of our influence if the reserves, uh, countries' reserves of dollars stay at that level near 60 percent, but more bilateral trade between countries moves off of the dollar? Is that a problem for us? Well, I think within the, the margins, it's not much of a, a problem. Now, problem being in quotes the question really becomes, if you're weaponized, if you're looking at this through the prism of what we can do to influence foreign policy uh, decisions by other countries via sanctions and other similar uh, tools, then the question is, do we ultimately have the ability to enforce what we're imposing via sanctions or secondary sanctions? Secondary sanctions means it's not that we're going to be telling you that you can't do X. We're telling you that you can't deal with anybody else who is doing X. 
So if you're the PBOC or if you're any other major Chinese institution or other non-Chinese institution, that's the big threat. The big threat is if the U.S. government were to impose secondary sanctions on a bank in your country, does that impair that bank or that country's ability to operate in a business-as-usual environment? What we saw decades ago in the Iran situation was the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iran. Europe did not, and the U.S. sanctions were fairly toothless until we coordinated with the Europeans to impose financial sanctions jointly with the threat of secondary sanctions, and suddenly Iran sanctions really took a hit. And that's what really the U.S. continues to maintain. So as long as we dangle out there the ability to impose secondary sanctions on any country's financial system, the dollar as a weapon remains a pretty powerful tool. And presumably, even if more bilateral trade moves off of the dollar, as long as countries like China and others continue to trade a lot with us, that secondary sanction mechanism is still going to be a very, very powerful weapon, right? Well, it's not only with us. It's with everybody else that trades in U.S. dollars as well. So yes, clearly China-U.S. trade in dollars is a big deal, but China trade with other countries in U.S. dollars or again on a secondary sanctions basis, trading with anyone else who trades with anyone who trades in U.S. dollars. I mean, you have secondary sanctions are enormously powerful because effectively it just shuts down any entity from doing anything around the world because the dollar, even if it's diminished in terms of trade, in terms of reserves, it's still a very powerful and widely accepted currency. So if you're shut off from the dollar, you're pretty much shut off from the world. All right. One more question about the reserve currency, because here's what I'm wondering, right? If you're, let's say, South Africa, you're unhappy about U.S. weaponizations of the dollar, you're trying to reduce your reserves of the dollar, you're looking around, you're not seeing alternatives, you don't want renminbi, you don't want euros or as much of them. Why not just go with gold? So gold is an in, is, is clearly a legitimate uh, alternative. But let's just think about what gold really is. Gold is big, heavy bars that are sitting somewhere in a vault. So first of all, there's protecting them. They don't yield anything. U.S. Treasuries yield 4 or 5%. So you're actually getting a return. Gold just sits there. It can go up, it can go down. You can decide whether there's an intrinsic value or not. But it's sitting there. Then you've got to pay to actually protect it, right? We all grew up with cartoons watching people trying to tunnel into Fort Knox. You know, that's ha-ha, it's a cartoon. But yes, legitimately, you've got to protect it from somebody stealing it. But then if you want to use it, well, if you pick up the phone and you say, I've got a billion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries, you can probably get rid of it pretty quickly. If you pick up the phone and say, I've got a billion dollars worth of gold bars, that's not exactly a liquid uh, quasi-currency reserve. So it's hard. It's hard to liquidate it. It's hard to keep it. It doesn't give you any particular value play in terms of interest or any other income on it. So yes, the Russians, to use an example, the Russians have reoriented their reserves so that they now have $140 billion of gold as their reserves. That's up from around $40 billion before the invasion of Crimea. So that's you know a pretty big chunk of Russian reserves. But how exactly are the Russians going to actually liquidate that? The other problem is, let's go back to what I was talking about with secondary sanctions. 
if they want to actually liquidate those gold bars, they've got to do it through banks. Somebody's got to give them something that they can trade for whatever it is they want to use it for. And that gets back to if the U.S. has imposed sanctions on banks uh, denying access to Russian transactions, then the Russians effectively not only have to put those bars on a truck somewhere, get them out of the country and get paid for it, they have to do that illicitly. That makes it even harder and more costly to do it. So you can't do anything with it anyway. Well, you mentioned Russia, which is the second topic I wanted to discuss with you because since the invasion of Ukraine, the reinvasion really in 2022, you've had this unprecedented step that had been taken by uh, G7 countries to freeze $300 billion of Russian central bank reserves. And now there's debates about what should be done with that. Should we appropriate those funds and give them to Ukraine or use them in reconstruction for Ukraine? And of course, this would be an unprecedented move. It's never been done before. You've just spoken about how there is really no alternative to the dollar, so maybe there are less concerns about weaponization of our financial system. But is there a concern that countries would no longer store their reserves with us because of this potential of seizures of those assets? Where, where do you fall on that particular question? So, yeah, there, there's a real question about if the U.S. were to unilaterally change the law, and I'll get to why we need to change the law in a moment, change the law so that we could actually seize Russian central bank reserve assets in this country, then there's a real fear that other central banks, the Chinese in particular, but others, would say, wow, this is no longer a safe place for us to put our reserves. So we're going to move it to somewhere else. Presumably, most of those would move to the European Central Bank or other Euro-denominated central banks or Switzerland or other G7 central banks. The problem with that scenario is if the U.S. did that on its own, that's a real risk. But the U.S. has said, we're not going to do that on our own. At least Senate, the Senate has a bill that would suggest that we would do it, but the administration, Secretary Yellen, has come out and said this only works if you do it in close coordination with other major central banks, precisely because, first of all, the U.S. in the context of Russia, Russia before the war wasn't completely stupid about this. They moved the vast majority of their reserves out of the U.S. So although I don't know if the figures have been precisely disclosed, but the word is that Russia has around five, six, seven billion dollars of central bank assets in the U.S. out of its reserve holdings that were estimated to be around six hundred billion at the time the war started. So that's say that's what is that less than ten percent? Well, let's call it ten percent max. Sorry, one percent, right? That's not a big deal, right? Most of those assets, let's call it six hundred billion. 300 billion or so are estimated to be within Russia or friendly uh, partner countries. China, right? Yeah. Uh, nobody knows exactly because they don't disclose, but 140, we assume, is in gold. Um, so that leaves another 150 or so. We don't know how much they've sold down, but China certainly and, and others that we don't know. But there's roughly 300 billion that are estimated to be in uh, G7 style central banks. Of, of which the U.S. is a small portion. The vast majority of those are held in Belgium because that's where Euroclear is, is located. 
And while we and expl- explain Euroclear for for our listeners. So basically, what we did, we in the G7, uh, at the time of the invasion, we imposed a block, not a seizure, but a block on Russian central bank reserves. That meant we didn't know where they were, but we said they can't be transacted with. So that's a that's a pretty effective tool because finding them is hard. Telling everyone else you can't touch them is is a lot more effective, at least in terms of blocking them. Euroclear is where when a bond matures, those proceeds go to be passed on to the ultimate holder or the ultimate issuer, which would be Russia. So if you or I held a Russian bond and it matured, we would turn the bond over uh, and the proceeds would go to Euroclear for payment onto Russia, and Euroclear was prohibited from passing it on. It's an intermediate. So all of the bonds, we didn't know where they were, but when they matured, they all went to Euroclear. So it's estimated to be around $200 billion of the $300 billion is sitting in Belgium right now. And it could be more as more bonds mature, right? Yeah, I, although I, I'm not sure. Reserves are usually not held in long-term maturities, but we don't know. But yes, it could be even more. But let's say that we know now where the majority of that $300 billion is, and the majority are sitting in the EU or uh, countries that are, are G7. So we know where they are. The question then becomes, can you seize them, right? So they're blocked. They can't be used by Russia. But can you seize them? And seizing them is very hard. And it's very hard for legal reasons and for central bank reasons. Central bank reserves are supposed to be treated as sovereign, sacrosanct assets. You don't want them to be treated the same way as, for example, oligarch assets, right? It is estimated that there's around $1 trillion of oligarch assets floating around the world. And right now we have frozen or seized, in some cases, around $58 billion. So a small fraction of the $1 trillion. But... Those are privately held. I'll get to that in a minute. But the bigger chunk is the 300 that we have access to of the Russian Central Bank Reserves. And if you're going to seize them, then you're going to be effectively violating a basic premise of international law and international financial practice, which is that central bank reserves are treated differently from everything else. And that's We've never done this even with Iran or any other countries, right? So in the case of Iraq, we did, in fact, do something like this. But in the case of Iraq, you had a UN Security Council resolution and you had uh, the authorization of use of military force by Congress effectively declaring war against Iraq. That was in 91, not in 2003. That's right. That's right. The problem is we do not have a state of war between the US and Russia right now. So either Congress would have to authorize the use of military force or declare war against Russia, which politically, militarily, and every other strategically, nobody wants to actually have the U.S. Congress declare war on Russia right now. Probably not a good thing. Therefore, you'd either have to change the law so that you have a different catalyst, a different threshold that has to be reached before you can actually seize those assets. Or you'd have to declare war, uh, and we don't want to do either of those. If we do decide to change the threshold, then this becomes a question of whether we do it on our own 
And as I said before, if you have seven billion out of three hundred billion, or a total of six hundred billion, that's really not going to be worth the trouble. But then that means you have to have Europe go along with us. And Europe, where the vast majority of these assets are based, has so far been very reluctant to do that. Not for bad reasons. I'm not going to chastise the Europeans here. Because in fact, there's a big Pandora's box that you open in Europe if you change the threshold for where one country's aggression against another allows that victim of the aggression country to seek compensation through seizing another country's sovereign assets. Because if you are, to give an example, the Poles, looking back on World War II transgressions by the Nazis, you could make a case that the Germans would be subjecting themselves to claims by the Poles. No one wants to reopen that, least of all the Germans. But you've also got a lot of imperial history of empires emanating out of colonial uh, activities of other European powers around the world who are also a little bit sensitive to how you change the treatment of what they did in the past and what that would subject them to in the current day and age. So there's a lot of, of, of history and political re resistance but, as well as legal. But it could also make these countries parties to other conflicts. If there is a conflict you know, in Africa, for example, one party may make a claim against another and go to the central banks and demand payment, right? You're going to be involved in all these disputes and trying to figure out which ones you say yes to and which ones you don't. Absolutely. So the definite, like everything else in in uh, when you're dealing with issues like this, the devil's in the detail. How you define a threshold of aggression that reaches the level of seizing a central bank asset uh, is hard to define. I would argue Russian behavior in Ukraine has exceeded any definitional line. No matter where you set the red line, the acts that we are aware of, alleged but pretty clear that they took place, you know, reach the level of repeated war crimes that are so egregious that I would argue the precedent-setting value of this is to say, yes, you can go back to World War II and before and after, but this is a unique set of bar barbaric crimes that would warrant a different treatment. But defining that in law and then getting 27 member states of the EU to approve it, that's a heavy lift. And by the way, there's Switzerland as well, which is not a member of the EU, but obviously has a, an important banking system. So it's very hard to get there. What's so so I just want to clarify. So it's not enough to just get EU and US as hard as it might be. You also have to get Switzerland. Well, you would, you would want to get Switzerland. I think if you had the 27 members of the EU, the UK, the US, and presumably Japan and maybe Canada uh, all agreeing, and Switzerland was the outlier, um, I think... Switzerland would be not only under an enormous amount of geopolitical pressure, but financial pressure as well. Switzerland's a fairly small country. If you're suddenly going to make the Swiss franc the dominant global reserve currency, because it's the only one that's not subject to seizure if the Chinese invade Taiwan or other countries do things that the global community decides is so terrible that we're going to actually seize their reserves, that's not good for the Swiss economy, the Swiss financial system. I mean, that sets off... A, a lot of things you might think, Gene, that sounds like a terrific thing for the Swiss franc. But in fact, the Swiss franc valued as the most dominant global reserve currency is something that would be counterproductive to the Swiss, to say the least. But let me let me go back and, and just point out the, the other issue here, uh, which I made reference to earlier, is 
the oligarch uh, assets. And I just want to draw a distinction. So the oligarch assets are easier to actually seize because they're not subject to that same level of sovereign immunity, uh, but they are subject to individual private, uh, property rights. So while we may say it is an obvious bad thing that certain people made billions on the back of Putin's regime in Russia, and they were complicit in the system for decades, that's not the threshold. The threshold has to be that their assets were part of a chain of evidence that can go back to a crime, the specific crime, whether it's money laundering or sanctions breaches or something directly related to the commission of the crimes in the war. That's very hard to prove. And if they, if the U.S. government or the EU or other governments were to seize those without having a pretty ironclad link between the acts that are underlying the criminal predicate and the seizure, then those individual rich people whose assets are being seized would go to court. They might win. And if they win, it's not only bad PR, but it probably incurs a lot of costs to the government as well. So everybody's pretty sensitive about that before they actually go down that route. And it's not enough to say, well, this person came out on television and publicly supported the war, right? The rhetorical support may not necessarily be enough. Absolutely not. I mean, we've got people in this country on, I mean, you've got people on on major networks, cable networks, who have come out and supported the war uh, and have taken Putin's side in this. That doesn't mean the U.S. government could go in and confiscate their assets. I'm not drawing a moral link between the two, though they're both distasteful. But it's not a question of just being morally outraged. You've got to actually comply with the legal process before you actually seize property rights. So it sounds like this is going to be very difficult. But where do you stand on this personally, Doug? Do you think this is something that the U.S. should pursue with allies and, and try to figure this out? Well, I do. I do. I started by being very hesitant because I thought that uh, the, the risks to undermining the sovereign sacrosanct role of central bank reserves were pretty dire to the U.S., to the dollar, to to the, the broad-based international financial system that sort of underpins a lot of, you know, the, the way we transact business around the world. I've now evolved my thinking uh, largely because I think that the level of egregious behavior on the part of the Russian government means as setting a precedent, it's a pretty high or low bar, how you want to define it. And if you reach the same level of behavior as Russia, then yeah, I guess you should realize you're probably going to be subjecting your sovereign assets to some form of retribution. There's also, we talked about there is no alternative. This is, there's a lot of there is no alternative out there these days. And when you look at the amount of damage and destruction and the prospective cost of reconstruction of Ukraine after this conflict ends, it's hard to see where the funds are going to come from. So if you've got this pool of $300 billion of Russian central bank assets that is sitting there, it becomes politically very enticing for a politician to say, I understand all of the technical reasons why I shouldn't touch this, but for goodness sake, asking me to raise taxes on my population to help support Ukraine reconstruction while remaining you know, lily white in terms of not touching the Russian central bank reserves might be a political bridge too far. Now, there is a midway point here, and it's something being discussed by the commission right now, 
and I think the U.S. government is tacitly supporting this, which is to use the income of that $300 billion that has been uh, frozen and use that to provide support to Ukraine without touching the actual principle. So if you assume $300 billion yields you 5%, just to use a round number, that's $15 billion or 15 billion euros a year that could be funneled to Ukraine. That's a very appealing prospect. It's clever. Unfortunately, the ECB came out last week and said they don't like it very much, largely on the basis of the same level of we don't want to set a precedent and undermine confidence in the euro as an argument that I, I made before. But I think over time, countries might be more willing to do that than they would to actually seize the actual assets for themselves. And what's an interesting point to note is the entire Ukrainian economy can't absorb more than, let's call it 15 to 20 billion euros or dollars a year anyway. Why is so, that? Well, just because it's a, an economy that was around 160 to $170 billion before the war, if you're suddenly going to say, we're going to take the entire size of Ukraine's economy and we're going to throw double the amount of GDP it generated in a pre-war context into the country, that's they, they, there's just no ability to absorb that kind of in, inflow of capital. So there's got to be a time uh, over which those reconstruction costs are actually spread out. So if you were to do $15 billion a year for X years, you know, that might actually make a dent in the Ukraine reconstruction. We all hear the numbers, 300, 400, 600 billion. That's not meant to say that the war ends on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. They have the ability to spend $600 billion. There is a time period over which that needs to be deployed. And for a lot of reasons, maybe 15 or 20 is the right number on an annual basis. All right. So you talked about essentially three sources of funding that could be seized, the central bank reserves themselves that have been frozen now, the interest on that uh, on those central bank reserves as a really interesting solution, and then the oligarch money. What about the fourth one, which is the Russian sovereign wealth fund, which is about $150 billion. I'm not quite sure where all of that is invested. Presumably some of that is in Russia, but to the extent that they have investments overseas, and in G7 countries, could that be gone after? Uh, if they had assets overseas, the answer is yes. Uh, I don't think they have very many assets overseas. The estimate is that uh, the Central Bank of Russia and the Russian National Wealth Fund have a significant exposure in Chinese renminbi, uh, but I'm not aware of any disclosure of any material sovereign wealth fund assets that are held in any U.S., G7, or uh, friendly allied countries that could be seized. I think you would probably end up with that being closer to the oligarch assets rather than the central bank reserves, simply because central bank reserves are treated so differently. But I think the Russians were probably pretty clear that they wanted to get their assets out of other countries. And again, I should argue, I should make a, a, a point, we're talking about liquid assets. So the Russian National Wealth Fund, Sovereign Wealth Fund, might have illiquid assets. They might own, you know, real estate in the Middle East. But the ability to actually seize, liquidate, and monetize that is, you know, not something that could be readily used for the purposes of Ukraine reconstruction. All right. Last question, Doug. 
and probably the hardest one, which is we've seen what has happened to Russia in the course of this war. China undoubtedly is looking at this, trying to learn lessons in case she decides to go after Taiwan, what kind of economic repercussions they would suffer. They uh, obviously are tightly intertwined with our economic system, with our financial system, as are we. What do you think that the Chinese could be doing to try to limit their risk? Is it, is it even possible from us being able to take similar actions against China as uh, we are right now contemplating or doing against Russia? Well, we've seen the Chinese decrease the amount of U.S. dollar reserves. But it's not the way it was with Russia before the war or before this phase of the war, where they really you know, moved almost everything. As I say, there was five, six, seven billion left in the U.S. The Chinese still have hundreds of billions of dollars in U.S. treasuries. And the renminbi is de facto linked to the U.S. dollar. It's not uh, a direct link, but for all of the trade-weighted basket that they talk about how they value the renminbi, they really look to the U.S. dollar as a link to how they allow the renminbi to trade in terms of valuation around the world. So the Chinese are clearly trying to reduce their exposure to the dollar. And where are, they, where are they reducing to? If they're selling the dollar, what are they buying? Uh, I think it's widely diversified. So again, to some degree, because they are seeking to extend their own strategic influence around the world, they are deploying their assets globally but not necessarily depositing them in various central banks and holding them as central bank reserves. There was a period in the past where the, the Chinese central bank reserves were, were almost, or they may have even exceeded $4 trillion. You're now down around three-something trillion. So that's not as a direct result of uh, this war, but it is a result of China's different role in the world, how it's using its sovereign wealth, whether it is through uh, strategic deployment, the Belt and Road, you know, other things. They, they have a lot of far-flung exposures. So it's not just the way a central banker would think about it. I think you've got to think about it as a more multifaceted use of Chinese wealth. Well, Doc, this, this was absolutely fascinating. Really appreciate you coming in and explaining this really complicated topic to all of us. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks, Dimitri. Gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money.